Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk with Macomb County Executive Mark Hackle about his state of the county speech and hear why he believes infrastructure is an important priority, but mass transit maybe is not. Then we'll talk about Kamala Harris and her decision to drop out of the 2020 presidential contest. What motivated the decline of her campaign and are there double standards at work? We'll talk about it all next on Detroit Today after the news from NPR. Stephen Henderson here on 1019 WDET. This is Detroit Today, our daily chance to talk about issues and challenges and, well, inspirations here in Detroit and our region, in the state and across the nation. We have a really busy show today, and a little later we're going to talk with Brian Kalt, a constitutional law expert at Michigan State University, about what we saw yesterday in Washington Uh, constitutional experts testifying in front of the House Judiciary Committee about the impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump. And then we're also going to talk a little later about Kamala Harris and her decision to drop out of the 2020 presidential contest. What was motivating that decision? And are there some double standards about her race, her gender, maybe some of the things that she used to do at work. We're going to talk with uh, Andrea Gonzalez-Ramirez, who's a senior writer for Jen, who has been writing about uh, this race and these kinds of issues. But first, Macomb County has found itself smack dab in the middle of our national political conversations, especially since the 2016 election, and is likely to get even more attention heading into 2020. Last night, County Executive Mark Hackle said the county is in great shape. People are moving there. Home values are up. Employment is at record highs. However, infrastructure continues to be a problem for Macomb, and Hackle now finds himself a little bit of the odd man out in a renewed push for regional cooperation on mass transit. Mark Hackle, the executive of Macomb County, joins us now to talk about his speech and what is coming up in Macomb going forward. Mark, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thanks again for having me, Steve. Yeah. And if I can, uh, I'd like to say thanks for uh, the station airing the uh, speech in its entirety last night. Right. You guys have done that five years in a row. I really appreciate that. Helping yes. us get the word out. That's right. Make sure that uh, citizens get a chance to hear you, even if they can't attend the speech. Let's start with the way you started your speech last night, which I thought was interesting. You started with a tribute to former Oakland County Executive L. Brooks Patterson, who passed away recently. Talk about why you chose to do that. You know, I, again, I've known him for quite some time. And he's, a, you know, he's, he's been an important figure in the region, you know, like him, dislike him. Um, him and I had good working relationship. We didn't always agree on things, but uh, to me that matters not. You know, my, my biggest thing is can I trust somebody when I talk to him? Uh, and, you know, he was one of those guys I trust him, whether, you know, he, I liked what he had to say or didn't like what he had to say. Um, he, he was authentic. And so with that being said, you know, his family decided to uh, to come to the state of the county. I became aware of that, and uh, you know, I thought that's that was a good opportunity to at least once again say, hey, um, you know, this is somebody who was recognized by me uh, as being someone I was able to work with. Mm-hmm. You know, and fortunately, I've had that. You know, again, I look back and I'm thinking, Dave Bing, I had a great relationship with him, Bob Fagano, and uh, you know, again, currently you know, with Warren Evans, Mike Duggan, and now Dave Coulter. So, I'm one of the guys that likes to figure out how do we establish a relationship. And then figure out how do we deal with the issues. And fortunately, uh, it, it's worked well for us out here in Macomb County. Hmm. Uh, so let's start with the good news that you had in your speech. You had a lot of things to report that suggest that this county is in really great shape and that things are going forward. Uh, talk about this overall sort of economic health that uh, that you that you're seeing in Macomb. Yeah, when you stop and think about it, I mean, all, all the metrics that we look at, whether it's housing, household, housing, household income, you talk about, 
educational attainment, uh, you know, property values, uh, where we're at as far as economy. Uh, there's a lot that's happening here in Macomb County, and all of it is pointing in the right direction. And that's that's what we look at. We try to figure out, okay, is there an increase in education uh, attainment? Is there uh, median household uh, value? Is it increasing? You know, what's happening with uh, with the job market? How about the investments in Macomb County? And, uh, you know, we're, we're very fortunate. You know, there's again, billions of dollars in investment that's happening here, and in particular, dealing with manufacturing and uh, and defense, and now we're seeing the healthcare systems um, adding to that as well. So there really is a lot going on, and uh, you know, the unfortunate part is uh, we have a lot of jobs available. So there's 33,000 jobs available here in this county right now, and uh, it's a it's a great uh, it's a great I guess position to be in, uh, but one we realize um, you know at some point in time that talent talent attraction is going to be a challenge uh, moving forward. So, uh, Macomb, I always think, is a county that is experiencing a little more change and maybe faster than some other parts of the region. Talk about how those changes are affecting economic health and how those changes affect your approach to growing the economy, to making sure that people are able to participate in the tremendous opportunities that uh, you were just talking about there. Well, we, we, we work with our educational partners, you know, whether it's the ISD, um, obviously, of Cone Community College, to find out, you know, the needs of the um, different, um, I guess, if you will, manufacturing facilities and, uh, you know, other companies that are out there here in Macomb County, IT, cybersecurity. Um, you know, there's a lot of engineer um, opportunities available, too, for talent there. So what we try to do is work with them to figure out, okay, what are your needs? What are you looking for? And how do we work with, you know, the educational system to, uh, get our kids prepared for those jobs of, uh, of tomorrow, uh, not just today. And so, you know, things like the Ford Next Generation Learning, we're working particularly with Romeo uh, High School as well as the uh, Centerline Public Schools uh, to connect kids with these career opportunities and setting a classroom uh, setup. It's a very unique, very different uh, type of training or experience for the kids, uh, but one that seems to be very popular and working out uh, rather well. Uh, robotics. Um, we're putting up a robotics collaboration uh, so that any kid in the entire county has an ability to come to a central location here in Macomb County, uh, not only work with industry professionals, but work with one another to learn more about you know, the STEM programming, have an access to fabrication labs, and, uh, and train to figure out you know, what goes into this new technology or the high-tech workforce that's needed. So there's a lot of work we're doing, but uh, again, there's a lot of partnership and partnering to help us, you know, Find out first what is needed, and then how do we make that connection? My guest is Mark Hackle, the Macomb County Executive, and we're talking about his State of the County speech, which he delivered last night. We're talking about what's going on in Macomb, what he sees for the next year. A little bit, we're going to talk about transit, which should be on the ballot for many people in Metro Detroit next year. Mark has decided that Macomb may not participate in all of that, we're also going to talk uh, about the DIA millage uh, and uh, and and some other issues in Macomb. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what questions you have for Macomb County Executive Mark Hackle. Do you think it's time we have real regional transit here in Southeast Michigan? Do you think Macomb County should or needs to be part of that solution? Uh, we especially want to hear from you if you're in Macomb County, of course. Do you think Macomb is going in the right direction? Or do you think Macomb risks fracturing away from the region and the progress that Wayne, Oakland, and Washington are hoping to make together if it doesn't participate in mass transit? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Mark, let's talk about this transit question that has haunted us in this region for my entire life, uh, you are saying that that Macomb should not participate in another request for millage dollars to build another mass transit system, a better mass transit system here in Southeast Michigan. Tell me why. Well, again, I think we've talked about this before, and it almost appears as though it's just a repetitive conversation. And I say that because Macomb has always been at the forefront of regional transit. So the idea of the smart system uh, was to be regional with transit. Macomb County was the only county that opted in, thinking everyone else was going to do the same thing at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. The city of Detroit developed its own system, DDOT, and uh, everybody else decided to allow their communities in Wayne County and Oakland County to opt out. 
so we we were I guess at the time you know because I wasn't around when that uh, when that happened uh, to really understand it but when I talked to those that uh, did understand it they're surprised at the conversation today where people are saying that Macomb doesn't want to be regional with transit because back then they were wondering what happened who dropped the ball because we did not in Macomb County there is no disconnect but there is a disconnect in all the other counties and Macomb County didn't complain at the time the commissioners and the elected leaders here didn't say shame on you you're not being regional why isn't you don't want to participate how come you're not being part of it what they decided was if that's what they want to do in their counties then let them go their direction and they did and unfortunately there was no effort to try to get those other communities to join on board because they didn't want to so the communities inside Wayne County that don't want to participate I guess that's a that's a local issue and they decided not to the same with Oakland so far be it from a comb to complain about that but now all of a sudden when they want to put a transit system together because they're saying there's such a disconnect in those particular counties. Well, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of one of those things that I think the, the conversation falls flat with Macomb voters because they're saying, wait a minute, that's just not true. You know, why, why are we adding another 1.5 mil to a mill we've been paying for decades just to try to figure out how to force those other communities in Wayne and Oakland to become part of the system? So now we'd be paying 2.5 in taxing equity. Uh, boy, those communities are now paying 1.5. We're paying 2.5. People here are just, uh, I mean, it absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. So, 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 uh, so, so a convincing so, argument, I can tell you this. Yeah. So, so, so let me ask you this. Yeah. If we were to, and, and, and I've heard that objection from a lot of people, this idea that, hey, we're already paying for two transit systems in this region, DDOT and SMART, why should we? Wait, wait, wait but uh, well, that, that's not true. They're they're paying for one or the other. Well, they're so, paying for one or the other. But but as a as a region, we have two that we pay into that we expect to be able to deliver the services that we want. Would you be more in favor of a proposal that tried to make those two systems into one, so that this problem that you point out of paying taxes into one system and then being asked to pay into yet another? would would go away. I mean because one of the points that you're making about about Macomb opting all in on smart is true, but smart doesn't serve the region the way that we need it to. There are people in Macomb County, there are people in Oakland and Wayne who can't get to where they need to go with the system that we have. So if we made it one system, would that be more palatable to you? You know, I couldn't agree with you more. And again, that that doesn't need legislation. That can happen just by, by action. Sure. And it's not. That's the question. Why is it not? It's not Macomb. And so you can't, you know, I, I think you're finding that uh, it's not that the systems don't work well together, because I, I see what Mike Duggan is doing in Detroit, uh, working with John Hertel and Smart. They're making some great connections right now between the two systems, and they're doing some great things. The problem is there are communities that have opted out. And so the question is, how do you opt them in? Well, I don't know if anybody's going to get them in because they don't want to be in. And so if that's the case, legislation is only, this new legislation is an opportunity to force them into the system, even though they don't want to be. I'd pretty much rest assured that if there was a vote once again uh, with those communities outside of the uh, uh, outside of the smart system in Wayne County, Oakland, they'd probably vote to opt out again. And uh, they can, they can within a very short period of time, 90 days, if I'm not mistaken, opt into the system that they want as a community. They just don't do it. So that's the disconnect. And with that being said, I couldn't agree with you more, as I said early on. I said this when Dave Bing was the mayor at the time and uh, sitting up on stage during the economic uh, club meeting that we had um, at Cobo. And I said, you know, why don't, we, why don't we get to other communities to opt in? It brings more money to the system. There is no disconnect. And we could probably do more things with what we currently have. And uh, even he agreed at the time. But there was no effort put forward to try to get those communities that have opted out in Wayne and Oakland to opt in. Why? My assumption is because they don't want to. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Rusty in Sterling Heights. Rusty, what's on your mind? Hi there. So one of the things that you guys touched on was the job growth of the future for our uh, students or uh, people that are looking to the market right now. Um, I think one of the key indicators was Amazon looking away from Detroit entirely, the metropolitan area, I should just say, um, because of the infrastructure issues that we have here. Um, I think it's kind of short-sighted that we're not even considering, like, it looks like there is conversations of trying to unite the counties and everything like that. But 
well, let me ask this almost, why isn't Macomb County taking the initiative and just saying, hey, we're going to do smart, let's push forward with this, or Macomb lead the charge if that's what the issue is. Try to be the one that unites everyone together. We need to have a regional mass transit. We're going to be left behind. The cars and what we have right now, our infrastructure is just lacking so much that we're just going to be left behind in any future economic growth. Mm. Okay, uh, Rusty, I appreciate the call and the comments and the question. Mark Hackle responded. What are you saying there? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate Rusty's comments. Uh, but again, this whole thing about, and I, I think he kind of alluded to it. I don't know if that's exactly what he was saying. But uh, the, the falling short with the Amazon wasn't about mass transit. It had everything to do with talent. And when somebody well, it was says, both, well, right? They mentioned, they mentioned both. Steve, Steve, Steve you show me in a document where Amazon said that, not a phone call somebody got. That's where that came from. Well, people but, are saying, but the phone like, call was, was, I mean, the phone call was, was oh, about here, transit, right? right? Well, again, I think it was more about the talent. I don't think it was about, uh, if it's about transit, that's exactly what I'm talking about. If it's about transit, that wasn't the issue why Amazon decided not to come here. The reason Amazon decided not to come here was because of talent. There's a, there was a lack of the talent pool. That was the concern. They I mean, didn't think was, there was enough people here. It's a lot of it, to, yeah. That was, the, that was the number one issue was the whole issue of whether or not they were going to be able to attract the talent and find the talent. There was nothing in those documents that said it was as a result of not having mass transit. That was something that was made up at the time. But do you really think, I mean, do you really think transit's not an issue? I mean, that that seems, that seems. Hey, I don't disagree with you, Steve. It is an issue in Wayne County. It is an issue in Oakland County. I do not. I, I do not deny that is a problem in those communities. I do not deny that. But it's a in fact, problem it's in glaring. the. I think the issue is that it's a problem in the region, and whether Macomb has all its communities opting in or not. I mean, and and look, I think that's great. I think that's really important. The problem, though, is that we have these two systems that operate separately. They try to work together, but there are huge gaps. That they represent, and where, and where are those gaps? Where are those gaps, Steve? Well, uh, some of the gaps are in in between the counties, right? It's really tell difficult. Me, tell me, tell me specifically where the gaps are. All right. So if I live in Sterling Heights and I okay. work in Livonia, okay. how how do I get to, how do I get to work if I, I need a bus? I am certain you could take a smart bus all the way to the location in Wayne County that it, uh, it stops at. I think if we talked to a lot of people in Sterling Heights, they would talk about how difficult it is. That the cross-county connections are what we are really struggling and so, with. And, and, what, and so here, let me, let me ask you, Steve, what creates that difficulty? Part of it is the opt-outs in smart, but the other part of it is the lack hey, of a regional approach, smart? right? Where, where, the, where, where are those opt-outs at? No question. No one's questioning Macomb's commitment to the system we have. I think. Well, I, I disagree with you. There is, a, there is, without question, a question about Macomb's commitment. Macomb committed years ago, decades ago, to be 100% on board with regional mass transit, and we have, from day one, continued that commitment. That commitment on behalf of the rest of our But your commitment is to what we have now, which has these, uh, your commitment is to what we have now. Well, now we're going to be able to add to your tax bill in Macomb County another 1.5 mils so we can now force those communities in Wayne and Oakland Mm -hmm. to participate. How is that tax equity in Macomb? How could anybody, Stephen, say it's fair for any resident in Macomb County, and this is what you should be doing, paying 2.5 mils so that communities that have opted out for decades are going to only have to pay 1.5, so we now have the connection. Uh, How is that even a, a yeah? Well, as we as we were discussing, it's not a perfect solution, and perhaps a better solution. And perhaps are you kidding me? There isn't one resident here in Macomb County that would agree with what you're saying. In fact, most of them are saying the same thing I am. Why don't they get their communities to opt in? And far be it for me, getting back to the caller's question, to go into Wayne County and tell those communities that have opted out, you need to do this. That is up to the others, other elected officials in those communities to explain to them, to express the importance to them as to why they should opt in. Yeah, it's not an either-or is the problem, Mark. It's not the, a question of whether we should get people to opt into SMART or talk about regional transit, a better regional transit system. It's that we have to do both. And you're doing one end of that, of course, in Macomb. You are opting in 
at 100% on the system that we have, but you're holding back from the idea of a better system, which would get people where they need to go more efficiently and and easier. <laughs> if so, everybody opted in, it would put more money into the system where they could provide better. Any, anything we needed. Perhaps. From, anything we needed from SMART, we went to them to ask them, can they help provide these type of routes? In other words, if there was a need for an additional route in Macomb County, they have done that the fast service that they're providing. They have done sure. it. If we've needed something more up in the north end where there isn't as much connection, they have worked with those with, with the uh, community uh, funds that they have, the community grant funds they have, to go ahead and provide the direct connect for those particular communities. We, we get a great response from SMART here in Macomb County. Now, if anybody expects that some of you are going to get picked up at their doorstep to go to their workplace or to their school or to the grocery store or doctor's visit, that's, that's something I don't think that people would expect government to do. But there is options for that, and there's possibilities out there working with SMART, and we're talking to them about that in Macomb County. But the unfortunate reality is, Steve, the others have never got, put, not got past the original plan, and that was to be totally regional about transit when Macomb County did. And because they have opt-outs and they can't get them to opt in, there's an expectation that Macomb County has to I guess figure that out. Well, I, I mean, I think the expectation has to be. I do think it has to be universal. I don't think it's fair to single Macomb out. I don't think it's fair to single single Macomb out in terms of smart and it's. it's has anybody participation ever asked the question, Steve? Has anybody asked the question of those in Wayne County? Have you asked? I mean, I think there's fifty some communities in 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 total between Wayne and, uh, and, and Oakland that are not in. Has anybody asked the leaders in those communities? Have they gone to their particular township supervisors? mayors, uh, village presidents, whoever it might be, and ask them to participate. But again, and if their answer is no, the, the question is why. And where is the pressure on behalf of the transit folks to try to get those people to commit, I, to try to get to be I, a part I don't of the think, solution? I mean, I, I, there's no question that, that the transit advocates have been pushing to try to eliminate opt-outs from, from so I, uh, I guess for I a never, very I've long time. That. I've never heard that on a radio show. I haven't, oh, sure. Haven't I, Nobody's talking about the pressure being put on those communities to try to participate. Far be it for me to do that, because out here in Macomb County, with the people that I represent, we are, without question, satisfied with the smart transit system. Yeah, we're dissatisfied. You, are you, are you, are you prepared to say that you think everybody in Macomb is satisfied with what we have? I'm sure everybody would like something a little bit better if they have a need for transportation. That's, uh, that's just human nature. Well, that's the whole you know? point. The whole point is that we have a system that doesn't do what it should do. And, and why it's doesn't not, it do that? And why doesn't it do that? Partially because of opt-outs, but partially because that we have these two systems that don't cover all of the things that need to be done in this region. <laughs> and why don't they cover all of the things that need to be done in this region? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to grind this point into the, into the ground with you, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and I think you're trying to make this an either or when it is a both and, and that's part well, of the Yeah, the both and problem. means you're going to pay one mil for your, your transit that you've been Or we put them all together. And you're going to add 1.5 mils to your tax bill <laughs> to support what others never supported from day one. That is absolutely unacceptable. Yeah. Nobody, nobody in Macomb County would accept that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not arguing that point. I'm saying that there's got to be a better approach region-wide. Okay, Mark Hackle, it is always a pleasure to have this debate with you on the air here. I really appreciate <laughs> you coming by and standing in. You bet. Thanks again. <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you soon. All right, up next, we're going to have a conversation about yesterday's impeachment hearings with Brian Call, the constitutional law expert at MSU. Stay with us on Detroit Today. If this, what we're, if what we're talking about is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. If this isn't impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. That was testimony from one of the four constitutional law experts, Michael Gerhardt, a University of North Carolina School of Law professor, yesterday in front of the House Judiciary Committee in Washington, talking about the things that President Trump has admitted to doing on a phone call with the leader of Ukraine. The debate now is whether those things rise to the level 
of impeachment, according to the Constitution and according to the political process. Uh, Those impeachment hearings are continuing, and now Nancy Pelosi says that the House is going to draft articles of impeachment. We heard from three of those Democratic law professors yesterday about why they thought Donald Trump has reached the threshold of impeachment. We heard from one law professor who was called by Republicans who said he has not. To shed a little more light on what we heard yesterday and what we might expect going forward, we've got Brian Kalt, a constitutional law expert at Michigan State University and author of Constitutional Cliffhangers, a legal guide for presidents and their enemies with us. Brian, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. All right, so let's start with your reaction to yesterday's hearing. Did you hear anything that changed your mind? Did you hear anything that cemented your position, perhaps, on what the House ought to do with this question of impeachment? No, I don't think there is anything new for me. I mean, I'm someone who's been looking at these issues a lot, and I I know a couple of the people who were testifying, and it was was all uh, about what one would expect. And do you think that we are at a point where there isn't a whole lot of question about President Trump and his behavior? Is this impeachable behavior? I don't think there's there's any question. So with President Clinton, there there were questions. Like we, we all agreed on what he had done, and the question was, did it rise to the level of an impeachable offense? Here, the question is uh, still mired in the fact. Uh, The Democrats believe that Trump did these things, and the Republicans don't. Even the Republicans' expert, Professor Turley, said that a a quid pro quo would be uh, impeachable. Uh, He just didn't think that uh, the the facts had been established sufficiently. Mm. So um, that's the point we're at now. Yeah. So uh, going forward, Nancy Pelosi says they're going to draft articles of impeachment Give us a sense of what you expect those articles to look like. There was a lot of debate yesterday, and there has been, about which particular offense you include in this in this kind of uh, pr- proceeding. Do you make it about bribery, for instance, which I think is a, a concept that, that people probably understand a whole lot better than high crimes and misdemeanors, which is the other phrase that's in the Constitution, which is not as defined. What what do you expect that the House will do? I think it's interesting to uh, look not just at how they draft the uh, Ukraine uh, things, and as you mentioned, they could cast it as bribery or other things, but how many other things might they bring in? So starting with Ukraine, um, I, I think if they follow historical precedent, what they will do is rather than say bribery is a crime, these are the elements of the crime, um, and, he, and he did those, th- they'll back away from that. Um, despite the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, it's really separate from the criminal justice uh, process. It doesn't have to be a crime. So what they'll, what they'll do, I mean, it certainly helps if it's a crime, if they want to impeach you for it, but what they'll do is they'll put it in terms of violating his oath uh, violating his duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, things things like that, putting it in terms of abuse of his power. Um, even if the underlying conduct is criminal in their view, uh, they will they will sort of constitutionalize it uh, that way. And then the question is, do they go on and add uh, other things like emoluments clause uh, violations or things in the Mueller report? that uh, have been out there, but they haven't gotten around to uh, yet, but, but which they say, hey, while, while we're doing this, uh, we think these are impeachable too. I think you'll see some debate about whether they should stay focused on Ukraine or add in those things too. So I, I really wonder what you make of some of the objections that Republicans have to this proceeding about the speed of it heard from Jonathan Turley yesterday about that and about the idea that these offenses that the president is supposed to have committed are not provable to a legal criminal standard. Are those things that Democrats should really be concerned about and taking seriously? Well, the part about the proving it to a legal uh, criminal standard is sort of uh, sort of off base because, again, this is not a criminal um, criminal justice uh, proceeding. It's not about whether someone goes to prison. It's 
it's really just about, and, and there, there's, I'll put it this way, there's a reason that the Constitution assigns this task to Congress and not to a court, not to actual judges. Um, that said, the, the question is always um, not, is this a high crime or misdemeanor, because th- that bar is actually pretty low. It's, is this something that merits removal from office? And that fundamentally is a, a political question. And so each member of the House in voting to impeach, and each member of the Senate, if they impeach in the House, each member of the Senate in voting whether to convict or acquit, they'll have to decide for themselves whether they think um, he did something wrong, and then if he did something wrong, is it bad enough that he needs to be removed? It's not like there's some magical formula where once you've done A, B, and C, then you're automatically removed. It's always sort of rooted in this political judgment of, of the members of the House and Senate. And uh, so, so that'll be the debate. And, and I think that uh, everyone can have their own standard in, in Congress. They can explain themselves, and, uh, and the voters ultimately can respond to that. And, and what do you make of the effect on the republic, on democracy, on this idea that we are a nation of laws and that, uh, and that the political process has to sort of respect that at, at, at some level. If the president is impeached, for instance, but not convicted in the Senate, do you worry that the consequences will be undesirable for the, the, the republic itself, that, that somehow this will do damage to people's faith that the system works? Well, I, I think it's um, we're kind of in a no-win situation here. Um, for, for the, from the Democrats' perspective, they, they, they believe that what Trump has done is, is really wrong, and it would, be, it would be wrong for them to just give him a pass on that. Um, on the other hand, if they do this and it doesn't succeed, what have they really accomplished? They've, they've made a statement, but then the statement is that he's, I don't know, maybe not vindicated by the Senate, but certainly that he got away with successfully whatever, uh, whatever he did. Um, so there's a question, how much political capital do you spend on what ultimately you know is going to be a futile gesture? And then the Republicans can turn around and say, well, hey, um, that's what we do now. We impeach people, right? We impeached Clinton. They impeached Trump. Um, if, if you think that they've done something worth removing them from office, that, that's setting the bar pretty low. Let's do it. And I, I think it, it would be a problem if we sort of um, lowered the bar and saw impeachment happening more and more. Uh, sort of a, a, a go-to automatic thing. Um, I, I'm not saying that what Trump did uh, was was right or that the Democrats are wrong. I'm just saying that if you go back in history, there were all sorts of things that presidents did that people had deep problems with. Uh, even recently, think of Iran-Contra, um, think of the Iraq War, and we dealt with those things um, politically uh, in the ordinary course of politics and elections. And impeachment was sort of a uh, very held in reserve, very extreme case sort of thing. And uh, it's only in recent decades with uh, with the Clinton case and every president since then where people resort pretty quickly to talking about impeachment. It just wasn't it wasn't so much at the forefront uh, for the first 180 years. My guest is Brian Kalt, a constitutional law expert at Michigan State University and the author of Constitutional Cliffhangers, a legal guide for presidents and their enemies. We're talking about the testimony we heard yesterday in Washington in front of the House Judiciary Committee about whether the things that President Trump is accused of doing actually rise to the level of impeachment. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what your reaction was to this testimony yesterday. Are there any doubts in your mind about whether Trump's actions merit impeachment and removal from office? And what do you think would happen if Trump faced no consequences at all for the things he is accused of doing and actually admits that he did? As always, the number here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Doug in Macomb. Doug, welcome to the show. Hello, Stephen. Hello, guests. Uh, thanks very much for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if I could say to everyone listening that, uh, you know, George Washington wrote us all a letter in 1796 that uh, really goes a long way to everything we're witnessing today. And then I would ask you, and uh, You're talking about his farewell letter? Uh, His farewell letter? Yeah. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, And then I would ask your guest, I wouldn't imagine he'd be very well prepared to speak on this, but uh, in speaking to cliffhangers, constitutional cliffhangers, so what what, could, could we speak to what happens when the four objections given in Federalist 66 become our reality? You know what I mean? Whereas this GOP really only needs to uh, maintain a level of partisanship here in order to negate the entire impeachment effect here and, and keep it essentially illegitimate. Um, well, let me just stop there. Could, could, could the guest speak to what happens when the four objections there in 66 become our reality? Uh, th- and these objections were to the concentration of the trial power in impeachment in the Senate. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I just want to make sure that uh, that our listeners are following along because not everybody spends a lot of time with the Federalist Papers. Uh, Brian Colt, uh, can you address that that concern? Yeah. So um, I think the first important thing to note is that when the Constitution was written, when the um, Federalist Papers were written defending the Constitution. We didn't have political parties. They didn't think that there would be a, a two-party system. So impeachment wasn't really designed with a two-party system in mind mm-hmm. in particular. That said, uh, they figured that uh, presidents would face uh, uh, Senates that, that had people loyal to them and people opposed to them, that there, would be, that there would be sort of divisions like that. And by requiring two-thirds of the Senate, they understood that it would require um, a consensus that even people, even some people who supported the president would need to think that what he had done was so wrong that he needed to be removed uh, for that. And so once we got into a two-party system, that sort of translated into saying a, a number of people from the president's own party would need to think so before uh, that would happen. Um, where that has gotten us uh, into a little trouble is it didn't used to be that the parties were so uh, polarized. So it used to be there's a fair amount of overlap. If you had all of the Democrats on board, that meant you would have some of the Republicans and vice versa. And now the parties are completely polarized. There's no one in in between. Um, Even more so, the parties uh, seemingly have different versions of reality on, on a lot of things. And, and so that really makes it harder to successfully um, impeach and remove someone because it, it means that you have to get the agreement of uh, sort of both, uh, both versions of reality have to, have to say that what the president did was wrong. And, and we see that that's really hard to, um, really hard to muster, that kind of consensus. Hmm. Uh, as far as Federal 66 and um, the specific arguments there, I, I think most of those have gone away. They're sort of about, you know, what's the role of the Senate versus the court, mm-hmm. and uh, how powerful would the Senate be? Would they be too aristocratic? I, I think really it's, it's become more about this question of partisan politics and how polarized we are and how difficult it is to get the kind of consensus we used to have. In Nixon's case, um, Nixon didn't resign until the tapes came out. It was clear that he had lied. He had lied to everyone. He had lied to the Republicans who had been backing him up. So once the Republicans uh, d- deserted him, that's when he knew he had to resign. He was going to get impeached, but he was going to fight it out because right. he had the votes in the Senate. And then he didn't, so he resigned. Yeah. Uh, again, thanks very much uh, for the call and the questions. Let's quickly go to Glenn and Macomb. Glenn, what's on your mind? Uh, I was just wondering, um, there's so many people skirting the subject of why they want to avoid impeachment at all costs, if possible, because it's it's this harrowing thing that our co- country is going to go through. And my question is, if it's only happened, this would be the fourth time in the history of our republic. Isn't that odd? I mean, are we so perfect that we've we've literally only made four mistakes so grievous that we would replace? I mean, I, I look at uh, CEOs of companies. They come in and out. They, they screw up, yeah, they might get golden parachutes, whatever, but they come in and out. We make decisions that say this isn't working. Whereas in this situation, especially with the split 
uh, electorate, it's, it seems to me that it's we're expecting too much right. from the system. Uh, that's a great question, uh, Glenn. I'm glad you called and asked. Brian, uh, can we quickly talk about the, the reason that stability has endured the way it has in, in the executive branch of our republic? Well, I think it's breaking down. I mean, it, yes, four times in the history of the republic, if, if you're um, counting Nixon as one of the cases, um, but three times in, in my lifetime, uh, two of the last four presidents, uh, if this goes forward. So I, I think we, we see that it is uh, becoming more common. And, and it's not because the presidents only recently started doing questionable things. Uh, Gerald Ford said an impeachable offense is whatever the House says it is. But the reality is um, that that's actually a limit. It's only what a majority of the House is willing to say it is. And until recently, they weren't willing to say that very often. Okay, Brian Kalt, constitutional law expert at MSU and author of Constitutional Cliffhangers, The Legal Guide for Presidents and Their Enemies. Great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Up next, a conversation about the implications of Senator Kamala Harris dropping out of the presidential race. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. On Tuesday, Democratic presidential contender and former prosecutor California Senator Kamala Harris announced she was dropping out of the 2020 race. At one point, Harris was one of the front runners in this Democratic field, but her lead withered and financial support dried up. The question is why? Did race play a role? Did gender? And what do we make of the strong criticism of Harris for the work she did as a prosecutor? Back in the 90s and early 2000s, it was considered pretty crucial for candidates of color to prove that they could be tough on crime. But that reputation is precisely what seemed to drive Democratic voters away from Harris in the 2020 contest. Joining us to talk about the various political and social factors that played into the downfall of Kamala Harris is Ida B. Wells fellow and senior writer for Jen, Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez. We want to talk about how changing cultural and social values affected Harris and whether or not it's fair to hold someone accountable for collective changes to our social and cultural ideologies. Uh, Andrea Ramirez, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Uh, So in your piece, you point out that Senator Harris started out very strong back in January when she first got into the race, but that many of her wounds throughout this campaign have been self-inflicted. Tell us what you think happened. Yeah, um, I think one of the main issues that Senator has was that she was never able to claim a lane. Um, in terms of her ideology, uh, in terms of, you know, the policy stances she was making. One example was her support for Medicare for All way back in August 2017. But then when it came down to the race, she proposed a different plan that was different to what Medicare for All actually is. Um, So she would struggle between one thing and the other. We also saw this with her uh, prosecutorial record she kind of struggled with explaining that. She was never able to say, hey, I'm a prosecutor, like someone like Senator or Amy Klobuchar has done, or moving away from that because she got so much criticism um, because of the record she had while she was uh, an attorney general in California. Yeah. So it, it was, it, it, I think the main problem Senator Harris was she was never, never able to define her identity as a candidate. Um, and a lot of those you know, stumbles that she had was because she could not make up her mind of, you know, how she would present herself to voters. So so I, I want to drill down on this question of her role as a prosecutor and and talk about how race and time play into that. As I said in the open, it used to be just standard fare for candidates of color to have to prove that they could be tough on crime for voters to support them. But the rules have kind of changed, and Harris was really strongly criticized for having been tough on crime as California's 
AG, uh, this uh, talk about what has shifted that makes this now a detriment to, 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 to black candidates like Kamala Harris. Yeah, I think the issue is that we now understand how the criminal justice system does impact black and brown folks more than other people, right? We, we have a better understanding of how the system is set up <laughs> and how, you know, in many ways, the, the way these communities are treated, um, it's different than usually white people. Um, and in that sense, because we have a different understanding of, you know, things like sentencing, things like nonviolent crime and how, like, you know, people of color are usually sentenced to a lot of time in prison while white folks get away with a slap in the hand um, because we understand, you know, things like police brutality. I think collectively we moved away from that and, you know, there's a lot of push for reform, which makes it harder than to defend some of the decisions that Harris made while she was um, in California as a district attorney and then as the attorney general. Um, Even back when, when she was there, she made decisions that were kind of contradictory, right? Like her record shows that, you know, she did something like refusing to impose the death penalty against a 21-year-old kid who killed an undercover police officer. And she supported reforming the state's three strikes law, right, which can be construed as like kind of progressive decisions. But at the same time, she would do stuff like support the city's decision to allow um, law enforcement officers to hand undocumented juvenile immigrants to federal immigration authorities if they were arrested for a felony, even if they were not convicted of that. And, you know, it, it was kind of like that same hard to pin what her identity was. It, it, that was the case when she was in California. And then a lot of those decisions were harshly criticized. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and looking back, a lot of those decisions do not sit well with, with a lot of voters. And is it fair to apply this new standard when everybody, it seemed, was in the same boat 10, 15, 20 years ago, supporting all kinds of things that now seem unconscionable? Congressional Black Caucus, for instance, was the part of the, the, the Congress that helped deliver the crime bill to Bill Clinton. Now, of course, African-American uh, uh, prosecutors are being held accountable for those kind of things. Is, it, is that fair or is that, that a double standard? I don't know if I can qualify whether that's fair or not. What I can say is that, you know, it's the job of a candidate to speak for those past decisions. Right. It's, it's the job of the voters to decide whether those past decisions like impact their whether these candidates are appealing to them or not. Mm-hmm. We see someone like, you know, Vice President Joe Biden, who for a long time supported the High Amendment, which blocks federal funding for abortions. Yes. Um, and throughout his whole Senate career, he supported the High Amendment. And then earlier this year, when he said he still supported it, he got a lot of pushback and he changed his policy stance. And, you know, people moved on from that. I I think it's up to voters to decide. I just think that, you know, when it comes to Senator Harris, of course she faced um, some difficulties because she's a woman and she's a woman of color. And we cannot move away from the fact that, you know, women and women of color specifically are usually held to a higher standard. Mm -hmm. But whether it's fair or not, that should be up to voters to decide. So so talk about the implications, though, of... This happening to Kamala Harris in 2020, we have not had a lot of African-American women make successful plays for the major party nominations for for president. Does this damage that cause or does it maybe strengthen it by better defining the kinds of candidates who who might appeal? Yeah, I think this is, you know, we have to treat these conversations with nuance. Um, We can say that she had her flaws as a candidate while simultaneously recognizing that she was running for the highest office in the land. She's only the third black woman to shoot for this. Um, So obviously there's not a lot of precedent. And I think that it's her failure now. It's not going to be detrimental for future generations of black women who decide to run for office or not. 
But yes, definitely, we are very aware um, as women that we face, you know, concerns about how we speak and how we dress and how we, you know, pronounce certain things and, you know, the issues that we decide to highlight or not in ways that men don't. Um, And that's even more true for women of color. I don't think it's going to be damaging for future generations, but I definitely think that, you know, this gender and racial implications uh, it, it did have an impact on her on her campaign. Hmm. Um, and, and do you expect that the field, which now does not have a black woman, will continue to be affected by these questions about criminal justice and uh, how people have handled it now that Harris is out? I would hope that you know candidates are still questioned on their records when it comes to these issues, right? Um, I, he is, we don't have a black woman in the field right now, but we still have other people of color. And even if there were no people of color, I think the white candidates should be asked about this too. Um, the benefit of having a diverse field of presidential hopefuls is that they each can speak to issues that impact their communities most closely, right? We have someone like Julian Castro, who's made immigration a cornerstone of her policy agenda. Mm-hmm. We had someone like Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who before she dropped out, she made, you know, women's rights and, you know, family like a center part of her agenda. So I think it's important that these diverse voices are, you know, represented on the debate stage, but also on the primary. And whatever, whenever we lose someone like that, it, it is a loss for, I think, for the electorate. Mm-hmm. Okay, Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez, senior writer for Gen, the online magazine. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. All right, come back tomorrow when uh, Sandy Baru is going to be here to talk about the state of the region and transit. Plus, we'll have a conversation with the filmmaker behind Unlikely, a new documentary about second chances for college dropouts. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.